That's right. This mug is my commitment to no longer being a bandwagon fan. I am committed to the Astros every year they make it to the World Series. So, <laughs> it's fine. I boo myself. That's not hurting my feelings. Um, my name is Brandon. Uh, we're in a series that we call Life Together, uh, where we take a few weeks every year and we just talk about a few aspects of what we hope mark us as a church, as a community, as a, as a people, if you're new. The soldier, and this is a chance to get a window into the kind of community, the kind of church that we uh, want to be. And today, I get to make two uh, exciting announcements, actually three, two during the, the sermon and then one tonight at our prayer gathering, but two for us right now, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Let's talk life together. So week, week one, we talked about presence, this theme of presence. What, what kind of people do we want to be? What, what kind of presence do we want to have here in our community, and we said we wanted to be a rooted people, a people who just put down roots and we put our lives down and live for the good of our neighbors. We, we don't want to be transactional people who are just here living for what we can get from living in the city, but to live in such a way that we're giving our lives away for the good of our neighbors, for the good of our neighborhood, and the good of our city. That was the what, what kind of people. Now, week two was the how, and we said we wanted to be uh, a hospitable people. Uh, we, we don't want just a generic hospitality, though. We want to be a people marked by a biblical hospitality. And biblical hospitality is uh, marked by a people who um, share their lives and their homes and all that they have with everyone, especially the poor. That they would open up their life, open up their dinner table to all, to all, especially those in need. And this week, we're talking about the fruit of presence and hospitality multiplication. Now, to talk about multiplication, we, uh, we need to first talk about what the Bible is and what it is not specifically address one kind of fundamental misunderstanding about the Bible. And, and the misunderstanding is this, that essentially the Bible is one book with two stories, or one book, two gods. There's the Old Testament God, who is the angry and wrathful and vengeful God, and then there's the New Testament God, who's the loving and kind, compassionate God. That's not what the Bible is at all. The Bible is one beautiful story about God healing a broken world. And this one united story, it's got climaxes, crescendos, characters, and it's got themes that you can trace throughout. And one of those themes is multiplication. And so what we're going to do is we're going to trace this theme of multiplication, and then we're going to narrow into our verse and apply it to us. Now, admittedly, this is going to be a thousand-foot quick flyover of multiplication before we come in and zero in on Acts 9.31 and apply that to us, but to help us out, there's going to be three questions. One, what is it? Multiplication. What is it? Two, who is it for? Three, how does it happen? So what is it? Who's it for? How does it happen? And so what is it? For that, we have to start at the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story in Genesis 1, it, it goes like this, that God created, uh, created the male and female, and then in verse 28 says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. That the story of the scriptures begin like this with God creating man and woman and saying, go multiply, fill the earth. Take the image that I've imprinted upon you and fill the earth with it. Why does it matter that we see this in Genesis 1? Because we need to know that multiplication is not a theme in the scriptures that's in response to Genesis 3 and sin entering the world. It's woven into the fabric of creation. Right out of the gate, it's woven into the fabric of creation that we're to be fruitful and multiply, but... Sin does enter the world in Genesis 3. The world is now broken. And right after that, you have the story of Noah. Noah, the famous flood. 
And after the flood, this is what it says to Noah after God delivers them through the flood. Verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound like Genesis 1 to you? The answer is yes. You're free to say it if you want to. Yeah, so Genesis 1 repeated right here. Point being that the uh, theme of multiplication that was part of creation didn't go anywhere when the things, when the world went awry. He says it to Noah, go, and his sons, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Did they? No. No. How do we know? Because right after this is the Tower of Babel. Um, in the story of the Tower of Babel, what they said was, you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to spread out. We're, we're going to zero in right here. We're going to build a city and a tower up to God. And then God came down, dispersed them over the face of the earth. And right after that, God came to a man named Abraham, Abram, who had become Abraham. I said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to leave your home and your land, and you're going to go. Go to the land that I showed you. You're going to establish a new people. And in Genesis 17, this is what he says to Abraham. When Abram, who had become Abraham, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said it to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between you, me, and you, and I may and may multiply you greatly. God said to Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to multiply you. And he did. He multiplied him into the nation of Israel. Nineteen times in the book of Genesis, the word multiply is used. And toward the end of the letter, it's used like this, that Israel settled in the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen, and they gained possession, possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So here's the point. If you want to understand the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you have to understand this theme of multiplication because it's woven throughout it. But it doesn't stop in Genesis. If we go to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, these first five books that the rest of the Bible flows out of, 20 more times the word multiply gets used, and the last time is this in Deuteronomy 30, 16. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and what? Multiply. And the Lord, your God, will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. These first five books of the Bible, this theme of multiplication just sits woven throughout them, and it finishes off with this. Listen, if you are a humble and obedient people following commands of your God, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to multiply you. But it begs a question now. Is this theme of multiplication only for Israel, Israel being the people of God in the Old Testament, was it, was it only intended to be for them? Well, the answer is absolutely not. Do you guys remember the story of Jonah? Say yes. Even if you don't know that story, say yes, I do. Jonah, no, the story about a man and a belly of a fish has nothing to do, well, not nothing to do, I'm sorry, that's an overstatement. It's not about a man and a belly and a fish. It's about God saying to a man, hey, go to Nineveh. Nineveh, this wicked and evil people. Go, go to Nineveh. Tell them to turn to me. It's about the story of redemption multiplying in Israel, through Israel, even to nations like Nineveh. Even to places like Nineveh. It's about God healing what is broken in the world in Israel, through Israel, and to the nations. And when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, the story just keeps on going. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what do we see? We see God multiplying access to himself. Multiplying access to God. Anyone and anyone, everywhere, can come to me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then in the early church, 
The book of Acts, we see it going from new people to new cities to new nations and just on and on and on and on it goes. And it is a story that has been going on for 2,000 years since then. It is a story that will go on to the end of time. God multiplying his story of redemption in his people through his people to the ends of the earth. This is the story that God is writing. But there's something I want you to see. That at the end of the New Testament, the word multiplied gets used again, but in a slightly different way. First Peter, Second Peter, and in Jude too. This is how it's used. I'll read First Peter and Jude. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Jude too. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Point being that multiplication is not simply something that happens out there, but something that happens in here. It's not just God healing what is broken in the world out there, but God healing what is broken in the world in here. That you who struggle with giving grace to yourself, may grace be multiplied to you. For you who struggle with anxiety, may peace be multiplied to you. You who struggle with shame, who just feel the overwhelming flood of shame in your life, May grace and love be multiplied to you, to you who think you are not worthy of love. May love be multiplied to you, to you who are lonely and afraid. May grace be multiplied to you. May peace be multiplied to you, to you who are sitting in this room right now thinking that I have done something unforgivable, and if they knew it, they would know I don't belong here. May grace be multiplied to you. Story of redemption multiplying is a story that is woven in us, through us, and to the world. This is how it has gone. He, healing what is broken. Now, now, if this is the redeeming story that God is multiplying in us and through us, from Israel to the nations, to Christ, to the church, to us, who is it for? This is where we will zero in on our verse. Acts 9, 31, there are some implications more clear than, than just generically the nation's I'm going to read the first part of the verse, because in the three locations, there, there's something that, that we really, uh, I think, might be helped in seeing. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. In our verse, it opens up with, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. To date in Acts, what's happened is uh, that um, that it was said, hey, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That's Acts 1. They're, they're found still in Jerusalem, and Acts 8, persecution breaks out, and they start spreading out. And they spread Judea, Galilee, Samaria. What are these places? Judea, the land of the Jews. Now, there was a Jewish population in all three of these locations, and the church at this time was likely predominantly a Jewish church. But what do we see in this? Well, in Judea, land of the Jews, these are the people with the lineage of Israel. If we brought that forward to today, think these are the religious people. These are the ones who practice religion day in, day out. But then Galilee. What is Galilee? Well, Galilee as a city was, or an area was predominantly, uh, predominantly uh, Gentile. Gentiles are non-Jews. In fact, uh, Matthew 4, 15 says it's Galilee of the Gentiles is how it describes it. There's actually a violent story from 100-ish years before this where a lot of them were forced to be circumcised and whatnot, but the culture was predominantly Gentile. If we brought that forward to today, think, these are the irreligious, the, the more secular among us. But then Samaria, 
the Samaritans were essentially the ethnic or racial half-breeds. In other words, they were the unwanteds. They're the outcast. They, they were the, you're not really Jew, you're not really Gentile, you're not us. They're the outcasts, the unwanted. What's the point here? In these three locations, here's what we see. We see the story of redemption, the story of God healing all that is wrong and broken in the world is a story that was written for every man, woman, child, including the religious, the irreligious, and the outcast. What does that mean for us as a church? For us here, it means this, that we're a church for all. We're a church for all. Sojourn Heights is a church for all, for those who grew up in the church and for the addict on the corner. We are a church for the rich, and we are a church for the poor. We are a church where rich and poor can come and dine at one table as equals we are a church for our Christian neighbors and for the atheist who's looking for a safe place to wrestle through doubts and questions. We are a church for all, religious, irreligious, and the outcast. Because the story of the Bible is a story of redemption multiplying to the ends of the earth, and that includes the religious, the irreligious, and the outcast. So how does multiplication happen? So that's who it's for. How does it happen? Let's read the rest of the verse. I'll start at the beginning of it. So the church that all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. A few observations, and then we'll summarize them. Observation one, do you notice it's, it says the church, the church, is that singular or plural? Singular. Singular. One church, three locations, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. There is a unity in this verse to the one church of Jesus Christ, the church. The church that was being built up, it was being strengthened, maturing in our confidence, convictions that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord over all, including the persecution that's happening all around us. And this united, maturing church was learning to walk and live in the fear of the Lord. Now, a lot that can be said about the fear of the Lord in the Bible, but right here we'll localize it to them. It meant at minimum, that their fear of the Lord was what was governing their life and that they had a fear that drove out of their fears. Because the persecution that was all around them was real and their convictions to follow Jesus was going to cost them even their own lives. They had a fear that drove out other fears, but this does not ever come apart from the comfort from the Spirit, this comfort that creates courage. That word comfort, it's a bit of an elastic word and it's Meaning it also has a sense of to encourage or to put courage in. That there is a kind of comfort in Christ from the Spirit that creates courage. And when your soul's comfort is from Christ, not your job, not your house, not your anything else, you fill in the blank, it creates courage. When we put them together, here's how multiplication happens. When there is a united church growing, living in the fear of the Lord, and that fear is driving out all other fears flowing from this comfort of the Spirit that creates courage. Multiplication happens. It happens when there is a united church living with courage. That's how multiplication happens. United church, growing, maturing in their faith. Fear that drives out fear. Walking in the comfort and courage that comes from the Spirit. So how then for us, Sojourn Heights, do we practice, do we pursue multiplication? What do we do? How do we do this? So I'm going to answer that under um, three headings, make disciples, multiply parishes, and plant churches. 
if we're going to talk about make disciples first, we probably need to define what a disciple is. I'm stealing this definition from a guy named Rankin Wilborn. Um, he said this, that a disciple is someone who, by grace and by choice, is learning from Jesus how to live. Someone who, by grace and by choice, is learning from Jesus how to live. Because listen, every one of us are learning from somewhere, someone, somewhere, or something about how to live. A Christian disciple is taking their cues from Jesus on how to live. And we make disciples at Sojourn Heights like this. We build relationships with our neighbors. We expose them to Christian community. And together we share the gospel. And that build, expose, share, that applies to both what we call neighborhood parishes and our Sunday gatherings. First, a neighborhood parish. That is a group of men, women, and children who have a meal together, who live life together, who laugh together, who cry together. And they live as a family on mission. As a family... We live in such a way that grace, peace, and love is multiplied in us and in one another. But as a family on mission, we are building relationships with our neighbors, getting to know them so that their life can be exposed to the kind of community that the gospel creates, so that grace, peace, and love can be multiplied in them as well. And so if you want to know how does your life on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday fit in the vision of Sojourn Heights, fit in the kind of vision that we want to have for a church. Here it is. You ready? It's going to be complex. You probably want to take notes. Live as a family. Get to know your neighbors. Introduce your neighbors to the church. Done. Live as a family. Get to know your neighbors. Introduce your neighbors to the church. That is how our vision gets carried out on Tuesday and Wednesday and on Thursday. But build relationships, expose them to Christian community, and share the gospel that also applies to Sundays. It also applies to what we're doing in here right now, that every time we gather on Sunday, through our liturgy, through communion, sermon, and songs, we are learning together how to live in light of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are learning how to live in light of Him. And I want to highlight two ways that we can make disciples on Sundays. There are plenty that we could talk about. I want to highlight two. This one, the first one, comes from a guy named Rick. Rick, um, I don't see you, Rick. Um, Rick was in my living room last Thursday night with this discipleship group that I have. We're praying through Psalm 145, and he asked, can I get verse 4? And we said, sure. We didn't know why he wanted verse 4, but we said yes. Verse 4 says this, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And then Rick prayed this. Rick is a uh, guy in his mid-40s, single, and was praying about sojourn kids, and he said, three years ago, Rick was my neighbor in the garage apartment in the house that we rented. One day he walked out, hadn't had a combo with him yet, and walked out, and he said, what do you do for a living? I said, I pastor a church. He just put his head down and walked away. Three weeks later, he was back there serving on our media team. And now he's praying this. Lord, as I read these words, I think of the blessing that has been to be a part of Sojourn Kids these past couple of years. And to be a part in my own way to help raise kids to love and trust in Jesus. To show them your mighty acts in both the Old and New Testaments. And as they grow up, to help make disciples of the next generation here in Houston. Or as I go out into the country or the world if they are called to do so. It has been such a blessing. Southern Kids is not childcare. 
It is making disciples of our kids and those who will make disciples of the nations as they grow up. But there is a second way. And the second way comes with an announcement. Here's the first announcement. You ready for it? Coffee is coming back. (laughs) Now, you better be just as excited about the second announcement as you are that announcement, but we'll get to that in a minute. It's coming back with the new building. Um, If you don't know, we're building a new building. We took it away when we were trying to really cut costs to make sure we're going to be in a safe place for that. It's coming back with the new building. Why are we bringing it back? Is it because we don't want your heads to nod during the sermons? Of course, that's why we're bringing coffee back. Um, No, here's why. We, We see it as one of the many ways in which we could practice biblical hospitality. One of the many ways in which we can say we are a hospitable community to the outsider on Sunday mornings, especially those in need, especially the poor. Because let me, let me tell you what, often those in need in our city, the, the, the biggest thing they need is some basic things, like a place to take a shower, a place to get something hot to drink on a cold morning. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to know that it's okay to roll down your window on the corner, look somebody in the eye and say, what, what, what's your name? I'm so-and-so. Hey, listen, if you're interested, on Sunday mornings, my, my church has coffee, and we'd love for you to come have a cup and sit there with us. You are more than welcome to be there. We want everyone, everyone in this part of our city who is in need to know that on Sunday mornings, they can come and get a hot cup of coffee and sit in a room as equals. And I want you to know it's okay to invite them. Make disciples. Now multiply parishes. Why do we multiply parishes? We multiply parishes so the hospitable presence of God would make its way to the doorstep of every single one of our neighbors. We want to be a church that opens our homes and our lives to all, especially the poor, and we want to do it together. And so we want to multiply parishes and multiply parishes so that this hospitable, welcoming presence of God can make its way to the doorstep of every man, woman, and child. Currently, our biggest barrier to multiplying parishes is a lack of parish leaders. And I understand that leadership can be intimidating and daunting, um, but let me describe a great parish leader to you. This is what we would see in an outstanding, top-notch parish leader. Now, obviously, there's more to leading a parish than just this, but, but someone who's qualified to lead a parish. You ready? Do you see the church as a family on mission? And can you love people when no one is looking? Do you see the church as a family on mission, living together as a family of grace, peace, and love multiplied among us? And can you love your parish when no one else is looking? Can you love your neighbors when no one else is looking? If you are convinced that the church is a family on mission and you, can, and you can love people when no one else is looking, then you can lead a parish. Why? So that so that the hospitable, welcoming presence of God would make its way to the doorstep of every man, woman, and child. But it's not just make disciples and multiply parishes, it's also church planting. We are a church planting church. What it means to be a church planting church is that when we open the scriptures, we see the story going from Genesis to Jesus to us through this church multiplication to the ends of the earth that we see church planting woven into the fabric of the scriptures. And sometimes church planting was strategic, like Paul going to this city or to that city. Sometimes it was because persecution drove them to a new city where new churches were started. But when we open the scriptures, we see church planting 
woven throughout. In fact, our model of ministry is designed to make church planting the obvious overflow. So disciples who multiply disciples, parishes that multiply parishes, therefore churches multiply churches. Why? So that the hospitable presence of God would make its way throughout our city, make its way to the doorstep of men, women, and children who we will never have access to. But through church planting, through new churches being started, the welcoming, hospitable, come and believe all who are will make its way to their doorstep. And here is our story, our sojourn story. In 2010, we held our first Sunday gathering as our church was officially planted. And a few years later, we planted Sojourn Montrose. And a few years after that, Sojourn Galleria, and then Sojourn Spring Branch, and then Sojourn East End. At the beginning of next year, Sojourn Brazewood. And we have Raph and Amico who are current church planting residents. And then the second announcement, I get to let you know that next year we'll be sending out one of our pastors to go and plant a new church. That next year, Drew Knowles will transition from being a pastor here at Sojourn Heights to a church planter, and you better be as excited about that as you were coffee. <laughs> what? Why would we send out someone so central to our church, someone who's been around for so long? Why? Because we believe in church planting as the means by which the kingdom of God will make its way to the doorstep of every man, woman, and child in our city. Because there are men and women out there who we will never have relationship with. Never. Never. But through church planting, the presence of God can make its way to them. Because we have neighbors in our city. We have neighbors in our neighborhood who do not sing Wounded Healer, who don't sing Wounded Healer, and we want them to sing. They don't sing Wounded Healer, and we want them to sing. So why do we say, go knock on the door of your neighbor, invite them over to dinner, because we want them to sing Wounded Healer? Why do we say, multiply parishes so that the presence of God can hospitably welcome all our neighbors so that they'll sing Wounded Healer? And why do we plant churches throughout our entire city? Because we want our neighbors to sing Wounded Healer with us. Because we want them to see Jesus as the healer of all wounds. And so we send. So we send and we multiply and we will continue sending and multiplying. And after Drew, it's going to be somebody else and somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. And it might even be you. Some of you can't fathom seeing yourself as a church planter or on a church planting team. And you should start considering it. Because we want the hospitable, welcoming presence of God to make its way to the doorstep of every man, woman, and child in our city, religious, irreligious, and the outcast. Every single one. Every single one. The story of the Bible is a story of God healing what is broken in the world, in us, through us, to the ends of our earth, until all, all will sink. That's what we're here for. Let's pray. Father, not, let us not be complacent. Let us not lose sight that we have neighbors who don't sing and we want them to sing. Father, I, I pray that we would always be a people who have our eyes on the outsider. Always, always, that your gospel, your story of redemption might multiply in us, through us. And, and then I pray we'd always be people with eyes on one another. Eyes on those who need grace multiplied in their own lives. Make that us. Make us a sacrificial people, willing to sacrifice what's 
best for us, for our own lives, for the good of our neighbors. We ask that that marks us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.